This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of March 1st through March 5th, 2021. And on Monday, March 1st, we have the contestants John Spurney, a musician and screenwriter originally from New York, New York, Jillian Zeidner, a legislative analyst from Sacramento, California, and Michael Colton, a screenwriter originally from Newton, Massachusetts, whose two-day cash winnings total $17,603. And the Jeopardy! round categories are American History, In the Medicine Cabinet, How About a Game of Cards?, London Monopoly Geography, from the classic British version, uh, Blank and Blank, and the National Recording Registry. I did better than I expected in the National Recording Registry category. Yeah, I I got them all, which felt good, because there were some pop culture questions, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like some some popular music ones, although they were very easy. Yeah. Like, who sang I Will Always Love You for the Bodyguard? Mm -hmm. It's Whitney Houston. Yep. And then the chronic. I mean, if you don't know the chronic, did you even grow up in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Um, I think most trivia people know this, but just in case somebody listening doesn't know this, Dolly Parton wrote I Will Always Love You. Mm-hmm. And I think she wrote it the same day that she wrote Jolene. It was a good day. Yeah. I managed to write a piece of music in a day. Pretty much all of, the, all of them are bad, though. <laughs> <laughs> not, not two incredible songs in the same day. That's for sure. Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up in the American history category at the $1,000 level. It's the 10th pick and Jillian finds it. She has 1400 and makes it a true Daily Double. She's in the lead at that point. John's at 1200 Michael's at 400 And she gets the clue. From 1953 to 1961, Alan Dulles was the director of this U.S. government agency. And she guesses, what is the FAA? I think that's a very smart guess, but that's not correct. Uh, The correct response is the CIA. Right. Yeah. FAA is a smart guess because of the Dulles Airport serving the Mm. Washington, D.C. area, right? So, like, thinking, oh, you know, maybe he was in charge of air travel, right? Like, air air travel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you don't know, it's the the only reference point you have, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she drops down, but it's early in the game, and by the end of the Jeopardy round, she's made it back up to 2200 um, to John's 5000 and Michael's 5400 And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Authors Road Trips, Anthropology, 1984 TV show debuts, F is for Family, Bartlett's Familiar Quotations, and Nationality Rhymes. They did pretty well with the nationality rhymes. Yeah. They missed the $2,000 clue, the standard principle for evaluation in Damascus, that is Syrian criterion. And I've noticed this with rhyming questions and and just kind of trying to come up with rhymes. It is, it seems so much harder to come up with two words that have different numbers of syllables that still rhyme. Absolutely agree. And I think that's probably what threw... What what made it, uh, you know, a triple stumper? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could not think of that one. Yeah, me neither. 
I got Syrian, and then I was stuck on two on on, uh, on three Siri and yeah, three syllable words. In the sixteen hundred dollar level of Bartlett's familiar quotations, uh, we had a pangram. Uh, the clue there was under anonymous is listed the helpful typing pangram, the quick brown fox, these five words. Uh, and Jillian got that one. It is jumps over the lazy dog, which is, the I think, the first pangram I learned. Mm-hmm. But hey, I'm about to tell everyone the best pangram, in my opinion, Sphinx of Black Quartz, Judge My Vow. Mm-hmm. It is so much cooler than any other pangram. It really is. Yeah. It evokes so much more than just a fox. Yeah. We got Daily Double number two. Uh, early on, it was pick number three in the round in the author's road trips category. They went down that category uh, for the first five clues. Is at the $1,200 level. Michael finds it. He is up to 6200 at this point. Jillian's at twenty six, and John is at 5000 uh, And Michael wagers 3000 Gets the clue. One of the most famous road trips in American lit began in 1947 when he rode the bus with crying babies from New York to Chicago. And he gets correct with who is Jack Kerouac. Yeah, you just need to kind of know Jack Kerouac. He comes up way too much, in my opinion, on Jeopardy. They like Jack Kerouac and On the Road. And if you haven't read On the Road, I mean, you should read it. It's not a difficult read and it's not terribly long. I haven't read On the Road. You have to put yourself in in a particular mindset to get into it. I think. Mm, okay. It was it was all right. Like it was fine. I think it. I think it's very zeitgeisty, and I think that it is worth knowing. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> the manuscript that he wrote on one like long, basically scroll through a typewriter. Uh, at least was for a long time housed at the Denver Public Library because the beats are closely associated with Denver. Hmm. I have seen it. Nice. Daily Double number three is in the anthropology category at the $1,200 level, and it's the 24th pick. John finds this one and wagers 2400 of his 16600 Michael's at 15600 Jillian's at 4600 so I think maybe John's just trying to head for a round number here. This will take him to 19,000 if he's correct. He gets the clue, pre-agricultural societies that relied on wild game and plants for food are known by this hyphenated term. And he gets that one with what is hunter-gatherer. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew cargo cults at the $2,000 level. I'd never heard that term before. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where I encountered it. But yeah, things would wash up on islands and people there would not know where they came from or why. Uh, yep. So they would try and uh, through religious ritual bring about more stuff. Yeah. At least that's how I've heard it. It's fascinating. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Michael is at 17,600. Jillian is at 4,600 and John is in the lead at 21,400. And the final Jeopardy category is Geographic Regions. And the clue... In, oh, of course I get the French one. <laughs> uh, the clue is... In Histoire de Navigations Alterastrales... I'm so bad at French. <laughs> Charles de Brosse coined this term for the many region... For the many islands of the region. 
Jillian wagered forty five ninety five and wrote, "What is Oceania?" Uh, that is incorrect. Michael wagered eighty three ninety nine to stay above Jillian's double, uh, and also wrote, "What is Oceania?" And John made a cover bet of fifteen eight oh one and wrote, "What is Polynesia?" And that is correct. Mm-hmm. Polynesia. Polynesia, I believe, just means many islands. Many islands. Which yep. is right there in the clue. Yeah, I think that that was pretty clearly the pointer there. But they probably, I mean, they probably saw Australis and thought Australia and islands, which is then, which would then lead them to thinking Oceania. Right. So on Tuesday, March 2, we have the contestants, Michelle Friedlander, a family law attorney from Encino, California. Jeff Noblet, a university administrator from Northridge, California, and John Spurney, a musician and screenwriter originally from New York, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $37,201. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, mountains, guitar talk, fish and chips, sports trophies and awards, presidential birthplaces, and up rising each response is two words one with up and one without man they had a hard time with that uprising category which i don't blame them it was a weird i don't it, it was just weirdly presented like yeah looking at the clues and the correct responses it's like okay i, I it makes sense but they yeah. were looking for two words which mike did explain but it just it was weird yeah, I feel like they should have just gone for the one word, right? Like, mm-hmm. you should have to provide the one that has up in it, but... Yeah. Yeah, so it, at the $400 level, up rises to the top of a truck's cargo so you can move data from your computer to a server. John responded, what is upload, and was moved, was ruled incorrect. Jeff tried, what is backup, also incorrect. John was on the right track, but they were looking for two words. So he was supposed to not just say mm-hmm. what is upload, but what are load and upload. To, to, to my mind, if you say upload, then obviously you figured out load. So right. I, it's not, yeah, it's not a lack of cognition. Right. It's just, I mean, but, it, it sort of tests whether you can kind of stay focused on following the parameters. Yeah. But it just felt a little stilted to me. Yeah. Uh, John, being a musician, started out the round in the guitar talk category, and he almost ran it backwards. He started at the $1,000 level and got that, the 800, 600, and 400, uh, but then Michelle snuck in at the $200 level and got it away from him. Yeah, I was sort of rooting for him to uh, run the category by that point. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, me too. Um, As a contestant, you cannot succumb to that kind of thinking even if you like genuinely like and enjoy all the people that you met in the green room like gotta be merciless on that buzzer so yep good for michelle yep we had a a brand name mix-up two hundred dollar and fish and chips alaskan pollock is the key ingredient in this alliterative mcdonald's sandwich john said what's the fish fillet but it's the fillet o fish (sighs) gotta gotta get it right there not to be confused with the friendlies fishamajig. Do they have friendlies where you are? No. Do we? I don't think so. Friendlies. What am I thinking of? Pretty sure we don't have friendlies. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. 
Yeah. What am I thinking? I think of Freddy's. Freddy's mm. steak burgers. Okay. Fishamajig. That definitely sounds appetizing. I want to <laughs> shove a fishamajig in my mouth. Um, I kind of love the name. It's a cool name. It doesn't sound tasty. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't make me want to eat it. It makes me interested, but not to eat it. Yeah. I feel like it's something I'd buy and give to my kids. Like, here, play with this. It's a fishamajig. Um, yeah. Now that you say that, yeah, that, that fits better than, you know, a sandwich with that name. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the, the Daily Double is, is pick number 30. It's the last pick of the round. Uh, it's in the mountains category. Michelle finds it. She's at 2,800. John is at 6,800. And Jeff's at 1,600. Uh, and she only wages 1,000. I mean, we're on record. If you've been listening to the show, you know how we feel about that. Should bet more. Yeah. Uh, the clue is this highest mountain in Japan is actually a volcano that last erupted in 1707. And she knows it right away with Mount Fuji, which is why you should bet more. I mean, it's a $400 clue. Chances are you're going to know the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's a Jeopardy round anyway. But she gets it right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, the scores are what I just said, except Michelle's at 3,800 instead of 2,800. And the double Jeopardy categories are Colony Collapse Disorder, Five-Letter Words, U.S. Museums, Alternate History Novels, Compounds, and Making and Remaking Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've talked about Coles and Whitehead and the Underground Railroad on the podcast Mm -hmm. a lot. Yes, you have. (laughs) You've you've mentioned it more than once. And that's really how I knew it, I think, is from talking about it on the podcast, because I haven't read it, but... Mm -hmm. uh, I knew it from that. I liked hearing a mention of Robin Hood Men in Tights. Yes. <laughs> classic. Cinema classic. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen all of these Robin Hoods, but I I went through a very serious Robin Hood phase. Um, <laughs> in you my know, childhood. as people do. Yes. Uh, so I had all the character names right at my fingertips. And and of course I knew Robin Hood Men in Tights. That is that is one Robin Hood movie I've I've seen many times. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was an easy category for Double Jeopardy. I think. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I just thought that yeah. I, I enjoyed the whole category. Mm-hmm. In the U.S. Museums category, at the two thousand dollar level, the clue is a large mm-hmm. stabile called Two Discs is one of many works by this artist belonging to the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. And John gets that one with what is Calder. That's just a name to know for Jeopardy. Um, He is known more for mobiles. Mm -hmm. I assume that a stabile, I hope I'm saying that right. That's how Mike pronounced it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, my guess of what it was is correct. It is in the style of a mobile, but it does not move. Mm -hmm. It Uh, is not mobile. Yeah, so... Artist Mobile is a Pavlov. That one's always going to be Calder. There is no other modern Mobile artist you are expected to know. Um, right. Alexander yeah. Calder. Yep. I had the same thought when that came up. I was like, oh, yep. Yep. Calder. Mm-hmm. Calder, Calder, Calder. I yeah. can't. I literally cannot think of another name it could be. So if they said anyone else, I'd be like, cool. Uh-huh. I've never heard of them. Yep. Daily Double number two comes up in alternate history novels at the $2,000 level as the 15th pick. Michelle finds it and wagers 2000 of her 8600 John is at 12000 at this point. Jeff is at $6,000. Um, so this will move her up 
if she's right, uh, but not out of second place. Uh, similarly, she will not drop into third if she misses. Mm-hmm. Um, so at a $2,000 level, I think it's understandable to be conservative. But Andy noted, and I agree, that overall the daily double wagering in this game was excessively conservative. This one is the, the closest mm-hmm. to merited, I think. Um, yeah, but still. Yeah. Uh, she gets the clue. In the alteration by Kingsley Amos, this man becomes uh, became Pope Germanicus I in the 16th century, so the Reformation never happened. And she looks like she's guessing, but she gets it correct with who is Martin Luther. Yeah, that I mean, I've never heard of this, but that's the only name I was like. I mean, it's got to be Martin Luther. Who else? Who else would it be yeah. that would like prevent the Reformation? You know. Exactly. Yeah. But that does. I'm. I'm very interested in reading that. That sounds fascinating. It does. Yeah. That whole actually, I love alternate history anyway. So that whole category was like, oh man, I need to read these. Daily double number three is in the compounds category. It's at the twelve hundred dollar level. It's pick number twenty eight. So late in the round again, John finds it. He is at 20,400 over Jeff's 6,400 and Michelle's 11,400, and he wagers 2,000. He gets the clue, potassium sorbate, which inhibits the growth of molds and yeasts, is used mainly in foods as this. And he gets that right with what is a preservative. So he jumps himself up to 22,400, which I feel like, I don't know if he didn't think much, but I mean, do 3,000, man. Then you've got a lock. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Like, and and three thousand isn't going to drop you that much farther if you get it wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, John is at twenty two thousand four hundred. Michelle's at eleven thousand four hundred. Jeff's at eight thousand four hundred. And we have the final jeopardy category: world leaders address Congress. And my spouse blind guessed this one correctly. Nice. Yeah, I was very impressed. Uh, The clue here is the two to address three joint sessions are Churchill and this leader, his non-European country's longest serving prime minister in 1996, 2011, and 2015. Jeff responds, who is Tony Blair, who was a prime minister, Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. For for a lot of reasons, doesn't fit the clue. Yeah, doesn't fit. And he's wagered 8,000, so he drops down to 400. Michelle responds, who is Fidel Castro? Which I think we've all been in a situation where, you know, we sort of froze up and couldn't even come up with a viable guess. But Fidel Castro is a particularly amusing non-viable guess. (laughs) Right. In my opinion. Sure. Uh, And she's wagered everything but a dollar, which is understandable if she's trying to stay ahead of jeff Mm -hmm. so she drops way down and john has it correct with who is netanyahu uh and he's wagered 401 it's a cover bet and so he is our winner with 22,801 going into wednesday nice uh so on wednesday we have the contestants tim everhart an attorney originally from brockton massachusetts melise sahin collins a data analyst from Redondo Beach, California, and John Spurney, a musician and screenwriter originally from New York, New York, whose two-day cash winnings are $60,002. It's very good. Mm-hmm. And he gets the Jeopardy round categories, Whatcha Watching, Geography, How Now Dow Jones Company, <laughs> BCing You, Titles and Honorifics, and Starts with an Animal. Something about How Now Dow Jones Company just really... Tickles me. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Daily Double number one comes up very early in the round in the titles and honorifics category. It's at the $600 level as the fourth pick. And Tim finds this one. And he wagers 1000 Uh he has 600 at this point, so um, so that's the maximum. Um, and he's tied with John uh, at 600. Melise has zero at this point. He gets the clue. American legal eagles are commonly called this, but it also can refer to the eldest son of a baronet. He guesses what is a scion, uh, but that's incorrect. The answer here is Esquire. Mm-hmm. The $1,000 clue in the what you're watching category uh, is, I think, an important trivia uh, tidbit for people to know if they didn't know it. Not the actual clue, but dr- the clue is Drake's Nice For What video featuring Olivia Wilde and this ballerina. Uh, Tim Ryan, and it looked like he was guessing who is Misty Copeland. Uh, that's who I would have guessed, too. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the video. Uh, but Misty Copeland uh, is the first African-American prima ballerina uh, the New York ballet. Yeah. She's kind of like the, she's, she's the first, uh, black pre, uh, prima ballerina of any major ballet company, really, mm-hmm. at least in the United States. So she, she's a trailblazer and very important. The yeah. other important, uh, ballerina that you should know is Maria Tallchief, uh, significantly earlier, but she's native American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would have guessed Misty Copeland, although I haven't seen the video also. Um, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, no, she's important to know. And super cool. She's so also cool. super, yeah, like super cool and extremely good. And she's the person that I use as an example when I teach like ballet music to yep. my students. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Melise is in the lead with forty four hundred. John has thirty eight hundred. Tim has twenty six hundred. And we have the double Jeopardy categories: illustrators, science, we folk, we in quotation marks, languages. Tough talk and megaliths. We had a a similar conversation a couple of a few weeks ago. I don't remember if I took it out. I think I might have taken it out of the actual like final cut of the episode. But in the languages category at the two thousand dollar level, official in the kingdom of Cambodia, this language has seventy four letters in its alphabet. And they showed a picture. I don't know that that really would have helped many people. Uh, John guessed what is Hmong. Uh, that was incorrect. Uh, the correct answer was Khmer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember us talking about Hmong and Khmer in relation to Jeopardy. And I don't remember why, but we did. Oh, yeah. Yes, we sure did. I don't. I also don't remember why. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the Megaliths category. It's at the $1,200 level. Uh, it's pick number 10. Tim finds it. He's in the lead at 10,200 over John's 3,800 and Melissa's 4,400, and he wagers 4,000. Decent bet. I think that's a fine, fine number. He'll stay in the lead if he gets it wrong. And he gets the clue. This five-letter word for a circle of stones is a back formation from the name of a famous one on Salisbury Plain. And he gets it right with what is henge? Taken from Stonehenge. And uh, Daily Double number three comes up in the science category as the 21st pick. It's at the $1,600 level, and Melise finds this one. She wagers 4000 of her 5600 John is at 9400 Tim is at 14600 And she gets the clue. Working according to the same principles as a laser, 
A mazer gets the M in its name from this word. Um, she guesses what is mechanics, but the correct response here is microwave. We talked about the, the light, the electromagnetic spectrum last week. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think I mentioned that, um, that my spouse has a physics degree and he got very annoyed uh, again at the term maser because it substitutes the M for microwave instead of L for light. But microwave is a type of light, right? Like, right. it's not visible light. But it is light. Right. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing, basically. Yeah. Just not at a not at a frequency that we see as visible light. Mm-hmm. So she misses that and drops down. Uh, that was kind of her moment to get back into the game, though. Yeah. In general, I feel like they kind of rode the struggle bus through... A lot of double jeopardy, although um, John went on a little bit of a tear there at the end. Yeah, yeah. Tim Tim got the daily double, and then he just plateaued for the rest of the game. And John just steadily kind of made his way up to catch up mm-hmm. throughout the round. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, John and Tim are tied at 14,200. Uh, we saw a previous tie uh, with, I think, Brian Chang. Uh, on his one of his days, and Melissa's back at two thousand. We get the category European landmarks. Final Jeopardy clue: of the principal architects working on it from the mid fifteen hundreds to the nineteen eighties, like Pierre Lescaut and Hector Lefeuille, none were foreigners. Why is every Final <laughs> Jeopardy that I'm going to read this week French? N- none were foreigners. This is a triple stumper. Understandably so. Melise wagered nothing, smart bet, and guessed what is Arc de Triomphe. That's incorrect. She also said hi, Aiden. That's also incorrect. Uh, but she loses nothing. Tim wagered everything, as well you should when you're in a tie for first mm-hmm. place. Yep, correct wager. Absolutely. And he wrote, what is the soccer core? That is incorrect. So he drops down to zero. John also wagered, wagered everything and wrote, what is Notre Dame? That's also incorrect. So John and Tim dropped down to zero. They were lo- looking for the Louvre. And Mike explains I.M. Pei was the first foreign architect when he designed the Glass Pyramid. And like, yeah, going back and reading that clue, okay. I see that it says working on it from the 1500s to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. None were foreigners. But what that clue says to me if I, especially if I were on stage as someone who needs to figure out the answer and write it down in 30 seconds. What that says to me is there's a French landmark that took a long time to build and no one but French people have worked on it. Right. That's also how I interpreted it. I assumed right? that it was it, it a building that, that was it, begun in the 1500s and completed in the 20th century. Yeah. And, and only French people worked on it. Right. And like to me, that was like, wow, that's really hard. I don't know. I got to think about... You know, Notre Dame kind of made sense and like other things. I was like, I don't I don't know if any of them took that long to build, but maybe they did. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, and then it's the Louvre and he talks about a foreign architect. It's like, but the, the clue kind of the clue says there were no foreign architects. Right. I think I might have phrased it if I were trying to do this as until 1980, until until the 1980s, all of the architects working on this European yeah. landmark were French, French or like none of the architects were. Yeah. And so like, 
Yeah, the clue needs to point to the fact that somebody did work on it later who was foreign. Right. And that, yeah, this was a very poorly worded clue. Agreed. And because of that, Melise wins with her $2,000. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that there's been a little, like, fussing around the internet that uh, people find it less than satisfying when someone wins from third place in a triple stumper or you know they there are things about this game that some people found unsatisfying and um mm-hmm. we're not doing that here Melise no had money going into final jeopardy and knew how to wager for the situation right so she made the right bet yep. so did the others yes. they all bet strategically correct based on what your best chances are mm-hmm. that is how this game. game works the, the, the contestants are not concerned with you being entertained. Yes. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Chauncey Lowe, a student from Los Altos, California. Jim Cooper, a screenwriter from Pacific Palisades, California. And Melise Shaheen Collins, a data analyst from Redondo Beach, California, whose one-day cash winnings totaled $2,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, The King of TV, Playing the Sense Organ, Detective Fiction, Alphabet Dogs, A Break for Spring, and Homophones. I enjoyed the Alphabet Dogs. Yeah, that was a, that was a good category. Yeah. Uh, it was hard. It was harder because I, I, I need to learn my dog breeds better. It was hard for me. I got mm-hmm. I got Akita and I got Boxer, but I didn't get I didn't get any of the other ones. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't sure uh, at the eight hundred dollar level. The clue there was D. This breed was developed in Germany by a night watchman whose first name was Carl. Um, they were looking for Doberman mm-hmm. there. And I had a couple other dog breeds that start with D come to mind. I thought about Dalmatian for a second, but that must be, I assume, from like the like the Dalmatian coast region. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Um, and then I thought about dachshund for a second but no (laughs) uh but i was doberman was floating around there for me too somehow i knew from a long time back that toto was a cairn terrier that was at the 600 hundred dollar level interesting i mean it was cool to see kareem abdul jabbar yeah jeopardy hero why isn't he hosting any tell you what yeah why isn't he I don't know. Maybe maybe he couldn't. Maybe he didn't want to. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I, I, I would be surprised if they didn't ask him. I, I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's a Jeopardy legend. Yeah. Uh, but he also talked, he also brought up Sherlock Holmes, which I feel like Sherlock has been coming up a lot on Jeopardy lately. Yes. And apparently Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has written three mystery novels, which I did not know. No, I didn't either. He's, in, he, he's an incredible person. I mean, he was also like the the big bad guy in uh, what is it, Game of Death with Bruce Lee, like mm. back in the day. He's unbelievable. Like, yeah, Kareem, what a man. Yeah. Anyway, Daily Double number one is in the King of TV category at the four hundred dollar level. Uh, Jim finds it. He's at six hundred. Melissa's is at two thousand. Chauncey's at twenty six hundred, and he wagers a thousand as well. He should. He gets the clue. Jared Harris's George VI gave up the ghost and the title object on this streaming show. And he 
pretty clearly has no reference point because he guesses what is Mad Men, which is not a streaming show and also not a title um, object. Title object or like George the Sixth, yeah. Um, so he just took a guess, but it was the Crown, the Crown, George the Sixth, of course, yes. the father of Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. The Crown is so great. I feel like we've talked about that quite a bit recently too. Yeah. The crown, I, I feel like, gives me a reference point for a lot of Jeopardy history stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chauncey's at 4,400, Melissa's at 3,400, and Jim is at 1,400. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, Bible Babes, Getting Richard, Borders, In Latin, Please, Terms from History, and Hit... The road, road in quotation marks, and they are looking for hits, like musical hits. Yes. That have road. I was not sure uh, which way this was going to go. The Bible Babes category turned out to be about <laughs> infants. Uh, <laughs> um, Rather not... than lookers. You, yeah. You thought it was going to be, going to be the. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Don't we know that there's like a very small number of actually named women in the Bible? Anyway? It is a small number, yeah. Um, yeah but I feel like so. you could come, like you could come up with a set of five, right? That you'd have, yeah. Jezebel in there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, who you got else. Mary Magdalene, yeah. Rebecca, maybe. Uh, Leah, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, you could, yeah, you could, you could totally could. Yeah, that would be. I mean, titling it Bible Babes would be pretty misogynistic, I would say, but... Yeah, like, that's true. As, as, a, as, as, like, that wouldn't really mesh, I think, with what I th- we seem to think Jeopardy is, is trying to do. Yeah, it's so. not, their, not their ethos. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I thought the Bible Babes category was fairly gettable. We had um, a clue about... Uh, an Old Testament book of sacred songs uh, with the line out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. That's Psalms. They wanted to know where the shepherds were going to find the the infant in the Christmas story. Uh, that's a manger. Um, who did the Pharaoh's daughter find floating in a river? It's uh, Moses. And then the $1,600 one was surprisingly tough. Um, I thought so, too. <laughs> yeah. This prophet who warns Israel about the Assyrians says babes shall rule over Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, that's Isaiah. I could not remember whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah. And I have a, a literal graduate degree in this kind of stuff. <laughs> right. A lot of the prophets warn Israel about various um, That's kind of what being a prophet threats. was. That's kind of what they do. And there's there's several yeah. of them. So, you know, so I, I got it narrowed down right. to Isaiah or Jeremiah, but I went the wrong way. Nobody guessed on that one. And then we didn't get to see the $2,000 clue. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two is the 10th pick at the $2,000 level of Terms from History. Jim finds this one and wagers 1,000 of his 4,200. Um, it's a really tight game here with uh, Melise at 4,600 and Chauncey at 4,800. And he gets the clue. Neville Chamberlain is identified with this 11-letter policy of placating Nazi Germany. And he correctly responds, what is appeasement? Mm-hmm. The best policy, clearly. Ugh. Totally worked. Yes. Remembered kindly by history. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Daily Double number three is 
pick number 26. It's in the In Latin Please category. Uh, Chauncey finds this one. He is at 10,400, just behind Jim's 10,800, ahead of Melissa's uh, 7,000. And he gets the clue, desire or lust, a word popularized by Freud. And he isn't able to come up with anything. He guesses what is ego, uh, but the correct response is libido. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I did not I did not get to. I did not, I don't know, I hear libido and I guess I don't think of Latin. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't think of it either. Sort of groaned once it, once they revealed the correct mm-hmm. response. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jim is in the lead with 11,600. Chauncey has 8,600. Melise has 7,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, U.S. military equipment. And the clue, the U.S. Army's tradition of naming these began with the Sioux used in the Korean War. Melise wagers 900 and guesses what is a missile. That is incorrect. So she drops to 6,100. Everyone made round number wagers Hmm. in this game. Uh, Consider it. Yeah. Chauncey wagers <laughs> 700 and correctly responds, what are helicopters? Uh, so that bumps him up a little bit. Um, but Jim also has the correct response with what are helicopters? And he has made a cover bet and a little bit uh, with 5,700, which takes him up to 17,300. And uh, that gives him the win. And uh, Mike Richards noted uh, Sue was the first but you may be more familiar with Apache or Black Hawk, which were my mm-hmm. reference points when I was uh, when I was guessing helicopters. Yeah, I got there kind of backward because I was like, "All right, what was uh, what would be the first in the Korean War? What would be they? What would they be using first? Yeah, and I thought of helicopters, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I guess they do name them after Native American nations." Yeah. I think I thought of the movie Black Hawk Down um, Mm -hmm. and kind of figured it out from there. Nice. Yeah. And on Friday, we have the contestants Anne Mozzaferro, a high school English and drama teacher from San Andreas, California. Laura Portwood Stacer, an author and editor originally from Livonia, Michigan. And Jim Cooper, a screenwriter from Pacific Palisades, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,300. And the Jeopardy! round categories are Broadway Musicals, Business and Industry, Text Message Abbreviation, Army Surplus, Navy Bases, and Marine Biology. It's a clever little one there. Yeah, that was cute. They did a better job than usual of coming up with actual abbreviations that people use. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone use J-A-S for just a second. Um, yeah. I haven't either. Yeah. That seemed plausible. The uh, Broadway musicals category, I, I did okay with. I, I'm like hit or miss with musicals. Like if, mm. if there are some things that I know and... There are plenty of plenty of holes in my knowledge of musical, but I did pretty well in the category. The thousand dollar level I definitely knew. Set in a royal castle, once upon a mattress is a musical based on this fairy tale. That's the princess and the pea, and that's because I played the wizard in high school. Oh, nice! That was a fun show. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know the show at all. 
It had Carol Burnett as the leading lady. Oh, I love Carol Burnett. Original run. Yeah. Cool. Um, That category is where we find the Dilly Double at the $800 level as the seventh pick. Anne finds this one, and uh, she just has 1400 and makes it a true Daily Double. She's in a lead with Laura at 400 and Jim in the red at negative 200 And she gets the clue, The Morning of the Dragon was one of the songs from this Puccini-based Broadway musical. She guesses, what is Hot Mikado? I don't know if that's a thing. It is a thing. Okay. Yeah. I know The Mikado is a... Hot Mikado is a musical comedy based on the Mikado. 1986 was the first performance. Playwright David H. Bell, composer Rob Bowman. I This, this is a deep cut. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they were not going that deep. Yeah, so um, very impressive deep cut. But unfortunately, this is uh, a little shallower here. This is um, Miss Saigon. Based on Madame Butterfly. Right. I was pretty sure it was Miss Saigon. I also know there is a thing called M Butterfly, and I never can, I have never quite gotten my head around what that is. It looks like it's a play, not a, mm. not a, not musical. a musical. Yeah. Anyway, that drops and back to zero, but it's very early in mm. the round. Yeah. Oh, I, I never knew that Plankton was from the Greek for wandering. Yeah. 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 I've studied some Greek, but the word for wandering is not something that I ever came across. I think doesn't come up a whole lot in the New Testament. <laughs> they don't mention plankton all the time? No, seldom. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Laura has taken the lead with 6,400. Uh, Jim is at 2,000, Anne is at 1,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Bad Men and Robin, Globetrotting, three-word book titles, Ryan Gosling movie roles, That's So 2019, and It'll All End in X. That ending in X category I thought was pretty gettable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't think there were any particularly deep cuts. Yeah. You know, Bordeaux is a little bit of a little little bit tricky because it doesn't sound like it ends in X. Mm-hmm. That was the $1,200 clue, a blend of grape varieties. This type of red wine is named for a French city on the Garonne River. That's Bordeaux. Yep. The 2000 was a triple stumper, which I thought was a bit strange. They showed a picture, and the clue was, it took flight around... 150 million years ago and was once considered the oldest known bird i mean maybe maybe it's because i was a dinosaur kid but that's the archaeopteryx um, mm-hmm. i don't I, re- I know some some kids are space kids and some kids are dinosaur kids and some kids are whatever kids so maybe yeah they, maybe none of them were dinosaur kids mm-hmm. yeah i i saw the picture and like just from somewhere in my brain like i i had like a little bit of a dinosaur phase and i also took a course on dinosaurs in college um but mm. like i don't identify as a really strong dinosaur nerd but like the word archaeopteryx just sort of came to me you, you know that feeling where like like your conscious mind is like mm, i'm not sure i know that piece of information and then your sub- subconscious just, just sort of hands it to you um yes it was that yeah nice yeah all right uh daily devil number two 
is in the That's So 2019 category at the $2,000 level. Laura finds it. Uh, she's at 10,800, a significant lead over Jim's 3,200 and Anne's 2,200, and she wagers a mere 2,000. And she gets the clue, the discovery of Homo luzonensis, an extinct human species that lived in what's now this country, was announced in April. She gets that correct with what is the Philippines. Mm-hmm. It seemed like she must have just been paying attention to the news. I don't know um, how likely you'd be to get it by this other route, which is that it's named after uh, Luzon in the Philippines, where it was found. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in the Bad Men and Robin category. That's a funny pun. It's at the $800 <laughs> level, and it's the 22nd pick. Laura finds this one as well. At this point, she has 18400 and she wagers 3000 Jim is just at 2000 at this point, and Anne is at 6200 And she gets the clue. In 2005, four thieves at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport made off with $118 million worth of these bound for Antwerp. And she seems to be guessing, but she gets it correct with what are diamonds? I am so bad at Ryan Gosling movie roles. <laughs> he, he's just in a lot of stuff, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. That one with Ryan Gosling. I, I was surprised the notebook didn't ever come up. Maybe that was the $2,000 claim. It seems that a little easy for... $2,000 It wouldn't have been Maybe the Maybe that's why it didn't right? come up. Yeah. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Laura has a lock game at 21400 Jim's nice. at 9200 and Anne's at 6600 They get the Final Jeopardy category American Rock Bands, and the clue? In 2020, their greatest hits, with an optimistic 80s anthem, became only the third album to spend 600 weeks on the Billboard 200. Anne wagered 2400 to tie Jim. No. No, I I that'll take her to just... 9,000, yeah. Yeah. I don't um, know. And wagered 2,400. Not sure why. Uh, and guessed who is who are Aerosmith. That was incorrect. Uh, Jim wagered 1,213. It's a fun number. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think about that. And uh, got it correct with who is Journey featuring Don't Stop Believing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is correct. So he moves up, uh, but it is a moot point. Uh, Laura <laughs> guessed who are Twisted Sister. Sure. I guess, if you're thinking of an 80s band who was famous. Uh, but no, uh, yeah, they were looking for Journey. She wagered 2000 not risking her lock and drop down, but she was still the winner. Yeah, so we'll see her again on Monday. And we've got a new guest host. Katie, Katie Couric is going to be uh, guest hosting for the next couple of weeks. Yes, the first woman to host Jeopardy? I think that's correct. I think it's only been Alex Trebek and like uh, Pat Sajak. Pat Sajak. For a day. Yep. And then Ken Jennings and Mike Richards. Yeah. And Art Fleming, I guess, if you count him too. But still. Yeah. 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 So this brings us to the break point in our episode. Uh, we want to remind you that we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. Uh, we have some content up there. Whether or not we have extra content, if you want to support us financially, that is where you can do so. Uh, And 
in this break. Uh, we do want to remind you that uh, we appreciate your ratings and reviews. Uh, if you write a new review, we'd be happy to read it on the podcast. Uh, you know, assuming there's you know like uh, appropriate language and all that. And also, we want to continue to encourage you to look for opportunities to support social justice movements. Uh, we like to highlight communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com as good places to start to uh, find resources and uh, opportunities in your area. So, Emily. Yes, Kyle. Would you like to tell the listeners what we're uh, going to be talking about? I believe we're talking about Jack Kerouac. Oh, we're not talking about Jack Kerouac. Ah, are we talking about Alan Dulles? We are not talking about Alan Dulles, though. That was very close. All right. What about... Or, like, that was one of the ones that I considered strongly. I don't think you would choose a topic where you had to read a lot of French names and places, but the Louvre. Ah, no. That, you know, that's a that's a good point, actually. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> if I had thought about talking about the history of the Louvre, I'd have been like... Yeah, no, I'm not doing this. This is the kind of thinking that you have to employ to be somebody who guesses the deep dive correctly about half the time. Um, That's fair. I I did consider talking about it, but I was like, man, that's a big history there. Yeah, fair enough. I don't care. Uh, Hey, we didn't. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't get it. I know. I know. I'm like celebrating that you didn't get it. I'm sorry, but that's okay. That's okay. It's fair enough. It's less common. This is from Tuesday's Game, uh, the alternate history novels category. The $800 level in Ruled Britannia, the Spanish Armada, was victorious, and this Spaniard rules England alongside Bloody Mary Tudor. John guessed who's Francis Drake, which was, I guess, a name he associated with the Armada, but Francis Drake Mm. was British. um, Right. And not a ruler. Uh, That was Philip II. So uh, we are going to be talking about the Spanish Armada. All right. Sounds good. And a little bit about Philip II. A little bit about the context there. I thought about being like, we'll talk about Philip II and the Spanish Armada, but turns out Philip II was involved in a whole bunch of stuff throughout his reign. He was a very influential, extremely important ruler during the time. A lot of trivia people will probably know something about the Spanish Armada. They probably know the date, 1588. They probably know that it was wildly unsuccessful, and they probably know some names to go along with it, Francis Drake in particular on the English side. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into more of where it comes from and why why it occurred, and a little bit more about the um, Anglo-Spanish War that it was a part of. Uh, the Spanish Armada, or in Spain, it was called the Grande y Felicísima Armada meaning Great and Most Fortunate Navy. And it was put together by King Philip II of Spain, who was a Habsburg ruler. He was connected to the the Habsburg dynasty of Austria. Uh, It consisted of 130 ships, sailed from Coruña, May 1588, under the command of the Duke of Medina Sidonia. And... The purpose of the Armada was not just to be an overwhelming naval force, but ultimately the goal was to invade England and conquer it and restore uh, Catholic rule. This was one extension of the decades of war between Catholic and Protestant powers uh, in Europe. And there were more players involved than just England and Spain. And I'll, I'll talk about that. I'll get into it as, as it kind of emerges. 
as you probably know, uh, King Henry VIII of England began the English Reformation mostly as a way to make it okay for him to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Mm -hmm. And over time, it became more and more aligned with the Protestant Reformation that was going on in Europe, uh, especially during the reign of Henry's son, Edward VI. Edward put a lot of pro-Protestant reforms forward. Uh, he died childless, and then Mary I came to the throne, and she became known as Bloody Mary because she was a devout Catholic. And along with her co-monarch and husband, Philip II of Spain, she began to reassert Roman influence over uh, church affairs in England. It is reported that more than 260 people uh, were burned at the stake by Mary and her anti-Protestant laws. Uh, however, Mary died in 1558, which, when I read that, I was like, so that alternate history book, I guess Mary would have had to survive in order to reach the Armada? It, it, yeah, I don't know. I, do, mm. I still want to read it. But yeah. it, it, would, it, it wouldn't make sense for the Armada to be going in if Mary was still alive, because then Elizabeth, but whatever. Anyway, Mary died in 1558, and Elizabeth I took the throne. Elizabeth was uh, a Protestant. She quickly re-implemented many of Edward's reforms. Philip was also no longer co-monarch, and so he declared Elizabeth a heretic and the illegitimate ruler of England. And Philip II was very close with the Catholic Church as, like, a political power. Uh, he was the son of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and a very devout and militant Catholic ruler. He also supported the, I guess, conspiracies or plots that seemed to circulate about uh, attempts to overthrow Elizabeth and uh, put Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne. Uh, however, as we probably know, Elizabeth had Mary, Queen of Scots, imprisoned and executed in 1587. So that undid that as well. As sort of a response to Philip's support of Mary, uh, Elizabeth uh, threw her weight behind the Dutch revolt against Spain and also funded a lot of privateering uh, in the Atlantic against the Spanish treasure fleets coming from the New World. This just kind of escalated things, right? Bloody Mary died. Elizabeth took over and made it advanced Protestantism in England. Philip was upset with that, so he supported Mary, Queen of Scots. Elizabeth was upset with that, so she supported the uh, the Dutch revolutionaries who were uh, fighting against Spanish Habsburg rule. Spain had been in control of the Low Countries for quite a while at that point, and this was a, a push for uh, the Dutch Republic, self-rule, as well as uh, uh, Protestant self-determination in the, in the Low Countries. Uh, and so she threw her weight behind that and allied herself with them, which then made him more, more angry, and so he planned to invade England, overthrow Elizabeth, and basically take care of that ish issue. The king was supported by Pope Sixtus V, which I think you talked about this last week. How <laughs> that's just so, a yeah. funny, funny name. Uh, because Pope Sixtus viewed this, this campaign as a crusade. Hmm. Uh, and so as a result, he offered indulgences for the armies and the, the people serving in uh, Philip's military. It took a while, of course, to put together this massive fleet, and a raid on Cadiz by, led by Francis Drake in April of 1587 destroyed or captured about 30 ships and a lot of supplies, so it set back their plans by about a year. There is a rumor at this time that uh, Elizabeth 
also attempted to uh, initiate kind of a an entente with the Ottoman Empire to get them to move into the Mediterranean and harass the Spaniards, but that didn't nothing happened, so it doesn't seem that that worked. Philip initially favored a triple attack, starting with a diversionary raid on Scotland, while the main armada would capture the Isle of Wight to establish a safe anchorage in the Solon. Uh, the Duke of Parma, who was uh, loyal to Philip, would then follow with a large army from the Low Countries across the English Channel. Parma didn't really like it. He was not sure about trying to invade England without the element of surprise, and the appointed commander of the Armada was the highly experienced Alvaro de Bazan, Marquis of Santa Cruz. But he died in February of 1588, and the Duke of Medina Sidonia, a highborn courtier, took his place. Medina Sidonia was a fine soldier and administrator, but he had no naval experience. And he expressed that concerns to Philip. He was like, I'm not sure about this. I don't, I don't think this is going to work. I don't know that I'm your man. But apparently his message was prevented from reaching Philip by other people hmm. uh, on the grounds that God would ensure the Armada's success. Philip doesn't need to hear your concerns because God will make sure we are successful. Hmm. On the 28th of May, 1588, the Armada set sail from Lisbon and headed for the English Channel. As I said, there were 130 ships, 8,000 sailors, and 18,000 soldiers bearing 1,500 brass guns and 1,000 iron guns. Uh, the full body of the fleet took two days to leave port. Uh, it had a just a ton of warships, as well as, like, in various styles. I'm not going to get into it, because I'm sure we have some listeners who are like, Ooh, old boats! Yes, please! But we don't need to. In the Spanish Netherlands, 30,000 30, soldiers awaited the arrival of the Armada. Uh, with the plan being to use the cover of the warships to convey the army on barges to a place near London. In all, 55,000 men were were to have been mustered there waiting, which was a massive army for that, that time. Mm. On the day that the Armada set sail, Elizabeth's ambassador in the Netherlands met Parma's representatives for peace negotiations, but those negotiations were abandoned. The English fleet actually outnumbered the Spanish fleet, 200 ships to 130, but the Spanish fleet massively outgunned them. The The English fleet was much smaller, uh, both in terms of like the size of the actual ships and also the, the weaponry that they had available. In addition to the royal ships, 12 of the ships were privateers owned by uh, Lord Howard of Effingham, Sir John Hawkins, and Sir Francis Drake. Uh, and for anybody who doesn't know, a privateer is essentially a pirate who is like sanctioned by a government. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth and her government would essentially hire them to go and act as pirates against Spanish ships. Bad weather, which was really the biggest issue, delayed the armada uh, in the Bay of Biscay. Only about 124 ships actually made it to the English Channel. It was sighted on the 19th of July from England, and that is where the first action happened. On the 20th of July, the English fleet first engaged the armada, they gained the weather gauge advantage, which just means uh, it they they have like they have the wind at their advantage. And essentially, the way that the battles went, the English uh, ships were faster and more maneuverable, but the Spanish ships had more firepower. So the English figured out that what they needed to do was get the Spanish to basically fire all of their weapons 
while remaining out of range, and then they could move in and engage because the Spanish approach to naval combat was to load their cannons beforehand, fire them when told, and then try to engage and board enemy ships. So their ships weren't designed and their training wasn't focused on being able to reload quickly and being able to actually engage in, like, cannon fight. Mm. Uh, So the English figured that out, and basically they would kind of dart in and out and, like, dodge the cannonballs. And once most of the Spanish ships had fired off their first round, then the English ships would move in and begin bombardment. And basically they just decided we're never going to get close enough for them to try to board us, so they can't get us. So that was on the 20th of July. They uh, they engaged off of Eddystone Rocks. On the 23rd, they also engaged again off of Portland. And basically this whole time, bad weather put the Spanish at a disadvantage. They couldn't move as well. They were slower, bigger, and uh, the English took advantage of that, just kind of like picking at them over time. On the 27th of July, this is kind of the most important one, the Armada was anchored off Calais in a tightly packed crescent formation. Not far from Dunkirk, where Parma's army, which had been reduced to 16,000 by disease at this point, was supposed to be waiting. Uh, However, the Dutch also had a a small fleet in the shallows along the Flemish coast that were uh, keeping the barges from being able to, like, set up and and pick up the Duke of Parma's men as well. So really just like nothing was working out for them. At midnight on the 28th of July, the English satellite eight fire ships. So what they did was they just loaded up eight warships with pitch, brimstone, gunpowder, and tar, threw them toward the fleet, toward the Armada. The Spanish obviously could see that, and this was not the first time this technique had been used. It actually had been used at the Siege of Antwerp during the uh, like Spanish conquest of the Low Countries. They managed to intercept two of them, but the rest of them bore down on the fleet. Even though like they, the the English lost eight ships to this, uh, the Spanish actually didn't lose any didn't lose any ships to this tactic. However, what it did was it scattered their formation, uh, and a lot of the ships had actually cut their anchor lines so that they could move quickly, which ended up being an issue later on. Hmm. With the Spanish fleet scattered, the English closed closed in for battle, and this was uh, the Battle of Graveline. It's spelled Gravelines, but it's French, so... Yeah. And so this is where the English really, like, struck the largest blow. They stayed out of range until the Spanish had spent their, their weaponry, and then they closed in and fired broadsides, uh, which allowed them to maintain their position away. However, they ran out of ammo, and then they pulled back. Five Spanish ships were lost mostly by running aground or foundering, and many others were severely damaged. That was essentially the end of the plan. There was no chance now of getting with the Duke of Parma, no chance of getting the army across the English Channel. The invasion was done at this point. However, England didn't know that yet. And so, at this time, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, had assembled a force of 4,000 militia at West Tilbury, Essex, to defend the Thames Estuary against any possible incursion up the river toward London. Uh, This is when Elizabeth put on her ceremonial armor and went and addressed the troops, saying, My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery, but I do assure you I do not desire to live in distrust of my faithful and loving people. So on and so forth. 
about how wonderful the subjects of England are and how loyal she knows they are. And this is where we get the line, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. And a king of England, too. So we get a famous speech there, but it came of nothing because there was no invasion. And then after that particular victory, uh, typhus swept through the English ships. Ew. And uh, did, a, did a big number. Disease did a huge number on both the English and Spanish fleets during this time. And in my mind, it's like, how could it have been that lo- Like, how could it take that long? Like, it's, it's Spain to England. It's right there. But like this, you know, they're old warships. It lasted months. <laughs> anyway, after the Battle of Gravelines, the disorganized and unmaneuverable Spanish fleet was at risk of running into the sands of Zealand off of the Dutch coast, which would have been catastrophic because the Dutch Navy was waiting for them. Luckily, the wind finally went to their advantage and they were able to sail north. So as they sailed north between Britain and the continent, Howard's ships continued to harass their rear, uh, which also meant that they couldn't land on English soil, they couldn't turn around. Eventually, by the Firth of Forth, Howard called off his fleet. However, you know, they were at the north end of Britain now and they... The only option left was to return to Spain by sailing around the north of Scotland and go back either through the Irish Sea or via the Atlantic. And things were bad. Like, they were damaged, they were sick, they were running out of supplies, they were not planning on sailing this long. Things were bad. And, of course, weather and the Gulf Stream worked against them. Apparently, the late 16th century, and especially that year, was marked by unusually strong North Atlantic storms which may have been associated with high accumulation of polar ice off the coast of Greenland. So all of this was just like a perfect storm for them to not be able to do this. As they went around the coast of Scotland and Ireland, uh, the fleet ran into a bunch of bad winds, drove many of the damaged ships into shore, and a lot of them had abandoned their anchors, so they weren't even able to like secure shelter. And a lot of ships were driven into the rocks, and local inhabitants looted those ships. So it's estimated that about 5,000 men died by drowning, starvation, and slaughter by local inhabitants after the ships were driven ashore on the coasts of Scotland and Ireland. In the end, 67 ships and fewer than 10,000 men survived. Many of them were near death from disease, and many of them died after returning to Spain from that disease. In England, a medal was struck with the inscription, Flavit Jehovah et Dissipati Sunt, which translates to Jehovah blew his, blew his winds and they were scattered. Hmm. And that was the end of the Spanish Armada. The following year, England launched the Counter Armada with 23,000 men and 150 ships under Sir Francis Drake. But that also went really bad. Thousands were killed and 40 ships were sunk or captured. They were looking to capitalize on the weakness of Spain's navy at that time and try and incite a, an uprising in Portugal. But it just like totally failed as well. However, the defeat of the Armada did uh, like push naval warfare forward. And it uh, pulled away from the importance of boarding crews and made the uh, necessity of fully rigged guns much more important, Mm. which, of course, led up to the big naval combat of the Napoleonic Wars and that kind of thing. So the Treaty of London was signed on 18th of August, 1604. So this was 16 years later, and that concluded the Anglo-Spanish War. Now, that was signed between Philip III and Elizabeth's successor. So it wasn't even them who signed it. Uh, So this was an undeclared war between Spain and England, and it just kind of went on. Spain would send two more armadas, the second and third armadas, and both times bad weather 
played a major role in making them utterly unsuccessful. Eventually, though, the cost of war with France that Spain was engaged with, and, and as well as the war uh, in the Netherlands, Spain just kind of like was like, okay, whatever. And that agreement uh, put kind of set everything back to like pre-war status quo. Mm. And uh, that's it. That's the Spanish Armada. All right. That was helpful. I uh, I knew the Spanish Armada was a thing, but I, I had never kind of taken the time to get the full story. So I appreciate you uh, taking us through it. Yeah. In case it helps. The 80 Years War was the, um, the War of Dutch Independence. Mm. So that was also going on at the same time Spain was involved with. And that was kind of like part of this whole drama with the Spanish Armada. Yeah. All right. Too many wars. I get confused about all the wars. There are lots of wars. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Are you ready for a quiz? I'm always ready for a quiz. All right. I realized after I wrote this, I was like, these are all basically history questions, but they're kind of mixed up. And they all kind of have to do with that time period and and the people involved. All right. Oh, yikes. Okay. We'll, We'll see how we do. Question one. Elizabeth I was the last Tudor monarch. She never married nor produced an heir. Even though she imprisoned and beheaded her cousin Mary, it was Mary's son who succeeded Elizabeth. For five points each, what was his name and what dynasty did he establish? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, His name and what dynasty he established... I feel like he was a James. He was a James, yes. Yeah. Is he... I'm so bad at the chronology around here. He's not... Is he James the First? He is James the First. Okay, all right. Of of England. Right, oh, and he's got like... technically James the Sixth of Scotland or something. Yeah. But yeah, James the First, when we're talking about the United Throne. Yeah. You've done all the dynasties, and I should remember them... I, d- I did do English royal houses. That was a yeah, long time ago, though. It was a long time ago. Was he... Tu- I'm going to say Tudor. I don't know if that... Uh, I, I don't feel confident at all. No, because Elizabeth was right. the last oh, Tudor. Yes, that's um, right. He was the first of the Stuart. Oh, house. the Stuart. That's right. House oh, oh, I should have been able to get that. Okay. That's all right. You got five. Yeah, there you go. You I, I associate Stuart with Scotland. So when we were saying he was... James the first of England and James the sixth of Scotland. That's like that's when Stuart should have pinged for me. But oh yeah, well. Probably. All right, five is better than zero. That's true. Question two. In 1599, after three armadas had been sent to England, rumors of another one set England on high alert. That threat never materialized, as the fleet in question had actually been intended for Dutch waters, but was lay- waylaid by winds anyway. As a result of the panic. Francis Bacon records that afterward, people forbore not from scoffs, saying that in the year 88, Spain had sent an invincible armada against us, and now she had sent this kind of armada. Um, it sounds like it's, we're looking for a pun or something here. Like, it sounds like this is a quip. Um, is it an invisible 
armada? It is an Yay! invisible armada. That's right. Yes. The invisible armada is the, I guess, fourth Spanish armada that never, <laughs> never went anywhere. It, it was like, it was like stuck in the Azores. It didn't even get anywhere close. Well, that's fun. And it wasn't even intended for England anyway. Yeah. But like over the course of these nearly 20 years of this, uh, Anglo-Spanish war, like England was like on alert all the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well done. Nice. You, you sussed it out. That was good. Uh-huh. All right. 15 points. Question three. Queen Elizabeth I had many nicknames, including Gloriana and Good Queen Bess. Another nickname, which may have sometimes been used in jest, lent itself to the name of what U.S. state? Oh, um, is it like the Virgin Queen, Virginia? It is Virginia. Yes. Yay. That is right. Yes. I believe Sir Walter Raleigh named Virginia for uh, Elizabeth, but I could be wrong. Could be could be a little off on that. Okay. But yes, yes. The Virgin Queen was another another term for her. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, various reports will say it was meant for, you know, hold up her high honor as a an unmarried monarch. And then other people would say it was meant to be insulting. Mm. Um, given the number of s- suitors? What do you call a male mistress? Oh. Is there a word for that? Um, I don't know. I feel like there must be. I feel like there must be. But whatever it was, the, the number of men that she... Uh, cavorted with. Anyway, like Sir Paramore. Paramore. Okay. Uh, anyway, nice. You got it. 25 points. Question four. The storms that ravaged the Armada were given a particular name to highlight the religious significance of England triumphing over Spain. That same religious slash meteorological term was used for the weather that allowed William of Orange to invade England in 1688 while keeping English ships in port and depose Catholic James II in the Glorious Revolution. What was that two-word term? Oh, I don't know if I've ever heard this. It's not something that's still used, right? This is like a... I don't think so, no. I have never heard this in like modern parlance. All right, I'm trying to even come up with a viable guess. Um, was a holy hurricane. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, no, it's not that. Uh, it is the Protestant wind. Oh, okay. Yes, that's what they came to call it. There we go. Um, All right. Well, that's yeah, much so more I'm, straightforward than whatever I was trying to come up sure, with. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 interesting. Like a hundred years later, an invading army did make it to England to depose a Catholic monarch. Anyway, yeah, the Glorious Revolution is another topic for another deep dive. All right, question five. Many ships were lost in the numerous Armada campaigns. Stories of shipwrecks are rife throughout history, both fictional and true. One of the most famous shipwrecks, of course, was the Titanic. However, the Titanic was not the only one produced for the White Star Line of the Olympic-class ships. There were actually three. One was Titanic. One was Olympic. What was the third, which also suffered a devastating shipwreck? Oh, um... Also a name that is relevant to what we've been talking about today, in a way. Hmm. The Titanic, the Olympic... 
feel like it should be like something Greek mythology-ish, but if there's like another group of supernatural beings I'm supposed to know, I can't remember what it is. Um, relevant to what? Let's try, let's try like something, something European. Let's try like Europa. Oh, that's actually pretty close. It is the Britannic. Oh, the Britannic. Okay. All right. Yes. That's a zero for me, but I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, you were you got you got very close. Uh, yeah. It was actually sunk uh, during World War One, and apparently the loss of it was compensated by the award of the SS Bismarck to the White Star Line as part of post-war reparations. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So that was the 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 Britannic. Britannic. All right, you are at twenty-five points. Yeah. I realize this is pretty hard. Sorry. Uh, it was all it was all fair. Now I know about the Protestant wind. So. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't honestly. I didn't know if it was a term that maybe was more prominent, and I just wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. But I figured no, like, that was neat. Oh, I liked it, it. If anyone's gonna know it, it's gonna be a Protestant yeah. pastor. Mm-hmm. Our final category is things we should remember. Okay. I don't know how much I trust this category. I'll wager everything but one. We're wagering okay. twenty-four points. All right. Here's your question. The peace between Spain and England restored the antebellum status quo, which was economically and politically favorable to both sides. Spain had hopes that tolerance for English Catholicism would increase under James I, but that hope was dashed after what November 5th, 1605 event? If successful, James I would have been replaced by his seven-year-old daughter Elizabeth as a Catholic monarch. Um, it sounds like this is the, the gunpowder plot. It is the gunpowder plot. Yay! Yay! You did it. I know you talked about it in a previous deep dive. You talked about Guy Fawkes and, and all that. Yeah. So I figured this was going to be in there. Uh, yeah. But yes, yes, it is the gunpowder plot. Yeah. And as I looked into it, I was like, oh, man, Guy Fawkes was just one of like many dudes involved in this. And he wasn't even the one who like started it. Mm-hmm. He's just the one who got caught. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, was a, it wasn't just a plot of like people discontent with the government it was like it, it was part of this catholic protestant conflict hmm. but hey you got it 49 points yay 49 <laughs> should have wagered the last one yeah, oh it's well right. um, it's, a, it's a fun score yes there we go all right um well thank you kyle for a great deep dive and a very enjoyable quiz And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Uh, Such a delight to share Jeopardy with you in these turbulent times. Uh, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or a review if you would be so kind. Check out our Patreon if that's something that you're interested in or have the have the capacity for and even if you uh you aren't or don't you can tell your friends about our podcast especially if they're jeopardy fans that is right you can all find us on facebook at potent potables on twitter at potent potables one our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com and we will be back next week with another week of jeopardy recaps and a deep dive and quiz And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.